Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. For more on Walter's music, thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM there in Asheville on Wall Street. And thank you, Robin Collier, for airing Twice Five Miles Radio in Taos. If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And any Saturday morning, if you like to write, you can join me and my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. We host an imaginative storm writing prompt of the week gathering workshop conversation salon. You can find the Zoom link at imaginativestorm.com. The door is always open and there's never a charge for joining us. Imaginativestorm.com. Today I'm going solo on Twice Five Miles Radio. Lately I've been thinking about the ideas around practice. Often when you hear the word practice used, it's offered to give a context around creative efforts or professional efforts, like I am practicing my writing or my writing practice or my art practice or my meditation practice or Monica is a physician and she's practicing medicine or Jackson is a lawyer and he's practicing law. And certainly using the term practice to frame your pursuit of an artistic discipline or medicine or law is perfectly acceptable and indeed is an accurate description of what you're doing. You're practicing. You're working every day. You're putting yourself joyously, hopefully, into something that attracts you, something that's magnetic, something that catches your eye and holds your attention. I'm wondering today if we might want to expand the use of the word practice to include many other things as a way of describing what we do in our daily lives. Why confine the idea of practice to the arts and professions? Why not expand it to many other things we do? When you think about it, everything you know, all the information you have, everything you've learned around skills and how you live your life came from practice. You had to start somewhere. You had to put one foot in front of the next and move down the path. So regardless of what you're drawn to, practice is the foundational block that allows you to do most anything, allows you to achieve competence, achieve excellence in whatever you choose to do, whatever you choose to practice. And even as you expand your sensibilities around defining what you practice, like you practice woodworking, you practice walking, you practice making breakfast, you practice smiling, you can still use the idea of practice for the arts, like I practice guitar. Or you might be practicing graphic design in the digital space, which indeed does require a great deal of learning and a great deal of practice. Whatever it is, you show up every day and you do it over and over again until you become so unconsciously competent you can 
Do it without thought. It becomes easy. It becomes integrated into who you are and how you present yourself to the world. And practice doesn't have to be one specific thing. It can be a broad range of things that coalesce into one offering that becomes specific. I'm thinking of a friend of mine whom I've known for many, many years. His name is Roger Darrow. Roger lives in Asheville, and I first got to know him in the early 80s when he was running a small health food store in Asheville called Dinner for the Earth. Every time I would drop by Roger's store, he was always there. He was always friendly. He would say hi. He would help me bag up my trail mix or help me find some cereal or maybe introduce me to a, a new product like miso cup or a new sunblock for my face. Those little efforts that Roger brought forth when I came into the store, those efforts were part of his practice. He was practicing the grocery business. And of course, he wasn't practicing it alone. He had help. His whole family was there. I remember talking to his sister very often and to his mother. And they were all smiling and they were all happy. And they were all there practicing the grocery business, which was a service for many people in Asheville because back in the 80s, the options were limited around the good healthy food one could buy. So not only was Roger and his family practicing the grocery business, they were helping all of his customers learn how to practice healthy living. Like I said, I started shopping at Roger's store in the 80s, and it was really, now that I think about it, in the early 80s. Roger had opened his store in 1975, I'm an Asheville native, but at the time I was living elsewhere. I was living at, actually at Wrightsville Beach. And funny enough, in 1976, a year after Roger opened his store, I opened a little pizza restaurant at Wrightsville Beach, called it the Pizza Port. And I was practicing pizza making. I will tell you now, that was a good deal of fun, throwing the pizza dough in the air, putting it on a a, a wooden board and shoving it into the pizza oven with the sauce and the cheese and the pepperonis and the peppers and the mushrooms on the pizza, taking it out and then serving it to the customers who were headed to the beach or uh, coming home from the beach. The pizza port was just on the other side of the Wrightsville Beach drawbridge. And during that time, I would drive up to Asheville to visit my family and my friends, and I probably, I don't really remember it now, probably dropped into Roger's store. And then when I sold my share of the pizza restaurant to my business partner, who turned out to be an odd duck, to say the least, but nonetheless, I sold it to him. Sad thing to tell, about three years later, the place burned down. Can you believe it? I was glad to no longer be the owner of the pizza restaurant, but by that time I had returned back to Asheville and I had a little hiking store in Black Mountain, North Carolina called Appalachian Expeditions and we led tours around the area, bird watching tours actually. So that's when I started to dip into Dinner for the Earth and I imagine that I actually probably bought some supplies for some of the tours that we ran from the Black Mountain store there on Cherry. Street. And the reason my memory is so vivid of that time, there were a good number of people who had arrived in Asheville or, or who were Asheville natives who were very active in Asheville in the very, very early days 
of what now has become a full-fledged huge town full of all kinds of vitality. And if you're in Asheville right now listening to this show, you know what I mean. So coming back to the idea of practice and Roger and his store, Dinner for the Earth, I think Roger's efforts during those early days offer us a good example of how one can expand the notion of what we practice. And I think Roger is a good example of the expansion of the idea of practice because you don't usually think of running a grocery store as practice like you think of practicing law or practicing medicine. You very seldom say, I'm practicing grocerying, and yet that's exactly what Roger was doing. And along with practicing grocerying, Roger was practicing human relations, he was practicing community building, he was practicing the promotion of good health, and on and on and on. And the more Roger Darrow worked at his grocerying business, the better he got at it. His level of excellence rose, his knowledge increased, his base expanded, and the services he provided the community became richer and richer. You've probably had that experience yourself. Driving, for example, if you drive a car, think of how difficult it was when you first started to learn, how many things you had to remember. Now, if you've been driving a car for a number of years, maybe many years, you seldom think about getting in the car and all the complications that will come after you start the car, back it out of the drive, and head to wherever your destination happens to be. So you're practicing car driving. Another reason why this idea of practicing and thinking about it from the broader perspective is important, often we berate ourselves, often we hold ourselves in too high of an accountability around the things that we may not know how to do all that well, and we think it's our fault. We think it's because we lack something. And really, if there is a lack when it comes to achieving some kind of excellence or a fluidity in the work that you do or the the art you practice or the business you run it's because you haven't practiced as much as as you need to practice in order to make it work maybe the lack of practice of course is a field sign maybe you aren't throwing yourself into the practice of something not because you're incapable of practicing or incapable of achieving some kind of excellence in many different genres you may just simply not be interested in it. I read a book a few years ago titled Now Discover Your Strengths, which was published by the Gallup Poll Organization. And in that book, they lift up the idea that practice is the most important thing, like we're talking about now. They also lift up the idea that if you can discover what your strengths are, say, for example, if you like to communicate with people, if you like to engage with people, if you like to think about the future, futuristic thinking, if you will, if you have those strengths and those are interest areas that really compel you, then when you practice in those strengths, you will never get bored. You will always be able to achieve excellence. On the other hand, they point out that if you have some sort of job or some discipline that you want to commit to, but you're not that interested in it, like say, for example, I'm not that interested in accounting. It doesn't hold my attention. 
accounting is something you do alone. Accounting is something that takes long stretches of time to work with. Accounting is all about the minute details. None of those things are in my strengths base. I'm not that interested in that. I'm interested more in the communication, in language, in talking, in expansion, and curiosity. Now, if you happen to be an accountant and you love numbers and you love math and you love precision, then that is your strength and you will find great joy in sitting at a desk for hours just working with numbers. My brother Sam, for example, was a mathematician, is still a mathematician, and he loved numbers. Sam could sit for, for eight hours and never lift his head from the page. He just absolutely loved it. It was no effort for Sam to stay there that long. Conversely, because accounting and mathematical equations and staying focused on details, not my strength, I could probably stay with it for a couple of hours, but I will drift. The point in Now Discover Your Strength, if you study the things and the interest in your strength profile in your strength base, you will seldom get bored with it. You can go on and on and on. You can practice and practice and practice. And the practice will seem easy, effortless. Whereas if you're working with something that's not in your strength base, it will be a lot harder, a lot more difficult to pay attention. And the result of that is when you are working outside of your strength base, you end up achieving competence. When you're working within your strength base, the odds of you achieving excellence rise dramatically and likely it will happen, thus practicing the things that you love. Roger Darrow enjoyed practicing his grocery business because it covered so many of the things that were in his strength profile that he had to do it. He enjoyed it. He was drawn to it. It was something that was of great pleasure for him. So the decade of the 80s passed and we entered the decade of the 90s and Roger's business was still growing. And one day I went in and was having a chat with Roger and he was telling me about where he wanted to take dinner for the earth. He introduced me to a fellow he was working with, Randy Talley. And Roger said, Randy's going to help me expand Dinner for the Earth, and we are going to change the name. And I was wondering if maybe you could help me come up with a new name for this expansion. I wasn't the only one Randy and Roger asked to help change the name. I don't remember how long it took them to come up with a new name. I don't really remember how many times I sat with them and tried to offer something that would work. And I'm sure that there are other people who made contributions as well. Eventually, they did settle on a name. And the name they settled on was Earth Fair. And I remember talking to Randy and Roger about where they planned to open up their new store. They said, it's going to be big. It's going to be a proper grocery store. We'll have all the things that we we have always dreamed of having. We can offer so much to the Asheville community. And they told me that they were planning to open this store in the original shopping center that was built in Asheville when I was a boy. I believe it was completed in 1956. It was called Westgate's Shopping Center. It certainly wasn't a mall. It was a group of shops overlooking a large parking lot 
that continued on to the banks of the French Broad River, which was under the Smoky Park Bridge. And the French Broad River, of course, runs out of the Appalachian Mountains and goes over to Tennessee, one of the main thoroughfares of the region before the train tracks came in. Uh, people brought the barges and the commerce up the French Broad River. So it was fitting, I thought, that the new Earth Fair which was the dinner for the earth, would bloom, blossom, grow there on the banks of the French Broad River or close to the banks of the French Broad River. And Westgate Shopping Center was significant to me because when I was a boy growing up in western North Carolina, I played Appalachian music with my father. I played the guitar. I practiced my guitar. And it, often we would gather in the Westgate parking lot along with hundreds of other Appalachian musicians and people would stand around in circles in the parking lot and play music. So the entire place was covered in musicians playing their fiddles, playing their banjos, playing their guitars. And I was a small boy or a young boy and I had my little guitar and I hung out in the parking lot of the Westgate Shopping Center and played music. So it, there was some significance there for me when Roger and Randy told me about their plans to open Earth Fair there where I practiced music all those years ago. Here we are back to practice music, the arts, the professions, the grocery business, whatever you practice. If you do it long enough, things actually begin to take shape and things happen. So Earth Fair opened in 1994 and it grew from one store to many stores providing the same services Whole Foods provides, and it was the same size, each store was the same size as a Whole Foods store. Somewhere along the way, Roger and Randy decided to sell their shares of Earth Fair, and investors came in and took it over and continued to grow it. Now, I don't know the story here, so I'm no expert on it, but I do know that something happened a few years ago that caused Earth Fair to disrupt. Things didn't go as well as the investors would have liked. And so some of the Earth Fair started to, to fold. They started to close. I remember even shopping at an Earth Fair in Akron, Ohio. So Roger's dream and then Randy's help to bring Roger's dream to full life reached all the way up into Ohio, down into Charleston. I know I've eaten lunch at an Earth Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee. And yet something about the investors there, not as personal, not as much of a practice, but more an investment, caused the Earth Fair dream to begin to shrivel a bit. Good news, however. New investors came in, and I don't know if Roger was part of the new investment or not. I think Roger still may have something to do with Earth Fair. The new investors came in. They were vigorously willing to practice the grocery business like Roger did all those years ago in 1975 when he opened Dinner for the Earth. So now today you can go to Earth Fair at Westgate Mall and other places all over the southeast. And, and purchase whatever you want. It's a beautiful, generous store that offers the same philosophical services 
and the same practical services, plus much more, that Roger offered with his family back when he first opened the shop all those years ago. And while I'm on the subject of groceries and practice, Taos also has a fully appointed health food store called SIDS, where everybody goes, everybody gathers. It's not quite as big as Earth Fair. That said, it has a great range of offerings that fully services all of the Taos community. And it was opened in 1986, and the fellow who opened it, his name was, guess what, Sid. And you can still see Sid to this day working in, in the grocery store, along with many of his family members as well. So these practices that people do in a community, the practice you do in a community, does more than give you skill does more than allow you to have a sense of excellence around the things that you like to engage in, the things that you like to make, to build, to present to the community. These practices become the core of the community. So whatever it is you're doing that contributes to the whole, by way of practice, all the better. I imagine a store like SIDS or one like Earth Fair in Asheville, I imagine both stores have contributed to people moving into the area because they knew they had a store they could go to that would suit their needs. So here we are, back to practice, creating something. It suits the needs of those around you, and the community grows and thrives because of the practice you do, or your neighbor does, or whomever. And one of the ideas of practice that I most especially find intriguing, it implies that you have to keep working at something. When someone says, I'm practicing my writing, or I'm practicing my grocery store skills, I'm practicing whatever it is, my music, it's an ongoing proposition. And when people talk about practicing something, they often don't really go into any depth around the kind of education practice provides for you. And when I think of education, I think of learning as much as I think of going to school and getting a quote-unquote education. Although I love the idea of going to school and educating myself or having somebody teach me something brand new. Looking back over your own life, I imagine you might be able to see more than one time when you experience combining education learning and practice into a full focus that generated something rewarding for you. So when you look back over your life at the activities you've participated in that required the, the practice, the learning, and by extension the education, you will also remember likely that there was more things at play, like your imagination, your inclination to organize things, your desire to make something, make something tangible like a table, or how often have you heard someone say when you were younger, what are you going to make of your life? That's actually a legitimate question because we are constantly making ourselves over and over again. Practice learning and education are the, the core of what we do all the time. The unexpected variable that makes these three elements so compelling is mess. All of our busy making is messy, and mess is currency when you think about it. You start out building something, you're going to leave a lot of scraps around. 
you start out creating something that's more imaginatively driven. It's not a product like a table or a grocery store like Roger generated. You are going to have the, the psychological sense of mess. And sometimes nervousness comes along with a mess. You want to get it right. You want to do it well. And the messy indicators that are all around you maybe tell you, at least on the surface, that, oh, this is not going to go right. This is going to be too difficult. But as you practice within the mess, the elements start to fall in place. From a creative point of view, I'm thinking now of the time when I first started to think about the value of storytelling and how it might apply to me standing on a stage and presenting something from the oral tradition point of view. When I first saw storytellers in Jonesboro, Tennessee telling stories at the National Storytelling Festival many years ago, I sat there in the audience thinking, how in the world do they do that? It looks so easy. They must have been born knowing how to do it. It never occurred to me the reason they were able to do it was because of practice, learning, education, rehearsal, more practice, more learning, a lot of mess, a lot of mistakes, a lot of nervousness on their parts until finally one day after lots and lots of practice they started to feel more comfortable with whatever story they were telling and they were able to stand there on the stage and present the work as if it had been with them all of their lives as if they were born knowing how to do it. So when I watched these people work the stage and tell their stories and they were doing it with such great joy I wanted to do it too. So I decided to attempt to memorize poems and tell poems as stories rather than tell stories. I thought it would be easier to memorize a poem and recite it. Once it's there, it's there, I thought. And that turned out to be true, although what I didn't realize was how much effort and practice it would take to finally get the, the poem memorized so thoroughly that it seemed like I was presenting it as a conversation, as if I was thinking of it as I was going along rather than having it memorized. So when I started out memorizing enough poems to present as a show, I was working with another fellow, his name was Bob Falls, and we were calling our effort Poetry Alive, and that was exactly what we attempted to do. We wanted to breathe life into the poems that we performed, that we recited, that we had memorized. And it never occurred to me when I first started to memorize these poems how long it would take and how much practice would be demanded in order to get the poems up to performance level. Now, I was doing this work in the mid-80s, and it just occurred to me that likely many of the snacks I ate and meals I prepared came from Roger Darrow's Dinner for the Earth store. I was building this storytelling career in Asheville, so why wouldn't I be eating food from Roger's offering? Here we are, back to community. Everybody making something, everybody building something. When I first started to memorize the poems, I had a sense of what it meant to practice things. Like I said, I had practiced making pizzas. I had practiced having a hiking store in Black Mountain and practiced interacting with the customers who came through the door. I had some practice in sales. I also had been practicing my guitar 
all of my life, ever since I played the music there with my father and all those Appalachian fiddlers in the Westgate parking lot where Earth Fair still stands to this day. So I knew a bit about practice. I will say, though, I had never used practice as a currency in the same way that mess is a currency. Practice is something that you spend time doing. And the more you practice, the more effective you become in your art form. So when I started memorizing these poems, I started to get a small sense of the value of practice, the currency of practice, the spending of the practice time, and how it seems like nothing is happening when you're working on something brand new that you're trying to learn at first and maybe hopefully later, later, later down the line to master. So when I would sit down and try to learn those poems, I was practicing memorization. I had no idea how to do it. I thought you sat and said the words over and over and over again until you finally got them. I much later learned that you don't memorize like you were traditionally taught to memorize, which is sit and just try to ingest it. Memorization is a full-bodied proposition, and that comes with practice. Practice will teach you that you must move when you're memorizing in the same way that you move when you're working in a store or you move when you're building a house or you move when you're dancing. It's all about the movement. And the movement, even though it might seem messy, is smooth in a way, if you think about it. So when you're memorizing a line of poetry, instead of saying over and over, whose woods these are, I think I know, 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 and it goes on and on and on, till eventually you get the first line and you remember it. What you're actually remembering when you're repeating things rather than throwing your full body into it, you're actually just remembering the words when you take time to practice the atmosphere of the work that you're doing. Get a feel for the woods. Ask yourself when you're asking the question, whose woods these are, I think I know, who are you asking? And it goes on and on and on like that. So I spent quite a number of months rehearsing with Bob Falls, putting a show together. And I'll bet we went over that show hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. I never felt comfortable. I felt nervous. I felt like everything was going to fall apart. And yet I kept going with the practice. I kept showing up, kept rehearsing, and the day of the show came. It was in an, it was in August at McDibbs in Black Mountain, North Carolina. It's no longer there. McDibbs is not there anymore. But McDibbs, which was owned by David Peel, was a, was the first listening room in the Asheville area. And it is probably one of the reasons why Asheville has such a thriving community of musicians and spoken word artists even to this day. And if by chance you happen to bump into Roger Darrow, if you're in Asheville, and you ask Roger about McDibbs, he will smile and say, yeah, I remember McDibbs. I used to go to McDibbs all the time. So here we are, more cross-pollinating amongst the makers and the, and the doers and the practitioners 
in the community of Asheville. Same is true in Taos. The art community in Taos is as vital and as thriving. And the business community here in Taos is exactly the same. There's a great coffee shop called Apothecary owned by a group of really terrific people. It's very, very popular. Here we are, a business. And yet the business is all about the practice of making coffee. Way back when we were working with the poetry, we were making poems come alive, poetry alive. So when we finally got to the place where we could present the show, and I don't know, maybe Roger Darrow was in the audience that night. We certainly had a sold-out house, 55 people, in this beautiful room, and we had a small stage, we had a couple of microphones, and 55 people came, most of whom were our friends. I believe our admission was $2 at the door. We'd been practicing since May for this August show, and it had been quite an experience, and we did have the show down. I did have the show memorized. I did have my performance chops not really up to any kind of professional level, but I was able to get get into it, and I felt comfortable enough to invite the people to come and present something, and it was actually a two-hour show, which was somewhat heavy lifting because we really didn't know what we were doing. I was rather surprised to see a full house, and I was happy about it, and our friends all wished as well, and I think somebody maybe even brought flowers. I don't remember. I think maybe they did, though. It was it was quite a quite a nice gathering that evening. I remember house lights went down a little, room got quiet, and someone introduced us, and Bob Falls and I walked out onto the stage. And even though we had microphones on the stage, we decided to use voice projection instead and let the microphone sit to the side. What I remember most about that beginning on that stage at McDibbs was stepping up on the stage expecting to be excited. What happened to me, however, because I didn't have the experience of looking out onto an audience, I looked out for the first time trying to remember all of this material I'd never performed before in front of a group of people. Oh, I had done a few presentations previously, but nothing at this level. The level included the length of the show, which was two hours, the poetry, which was really fairly advanced poetry. I didn't realize it, but it was heavy lifting even for a trained actor. And then there were the people, all of whom were sitting there waiting for something important, or at least so I thought. I later learned they were there to support us, and we probably could have done almost anything and would have had a friendly reception. And even so, I wanted it to be good. I had We'd worked on it so hard. So when I looked out on that audience, thinking everything would be fine, I got dizzy. I wasn't so much afraid as I was startled because everybody looking at me looked different. I didn't know how to look at the audience as a whole. I later learned how to do that, which is to just look over the audience and don't look at, at the people as individuals. And then as you get more comfortable with it and working in your audience environments, you then can single out individuals and it becomes much easier. But that night, 
I looked out on that room and I was dizzy. I thought, my gosh, these, these faces are all moving. It was like balloons with eyes and noses and mouths and ears just floating out there in the room. And I don't know how long, I don't really remember how long it took me to settle down. I think I finally did, of course, and we managed to get through the show. And it turned out to be a pretty good offering. In fact, so much so, after the show, a professor from the University of South Carolina at Buford invited us to come down and present the same show in March of the next year, that would have been March 1985, to present the same show to her uh, English classes at the, at the college. She hired us and she wanted to pay us $400 to come to Buford to present our work. I was really pleased. It was a validation of what we had done. It was uh, an acknowledgement of our practice. I wasn't sure if the show was any good or not. I had no way of measuring it. I assumed that it went over okay because people clapped and they came up afterwards and told us how much they enjoyed it. And the funny part was the practice did pay off. We were up on that stage and after the shakiness passed and the people stopped looking like balloons floating above a rug or a floor, I settled into a real enjoyment of the, of the presentation. It was a very nice beginning. I don't remember if I actually understood how valuable the practice was when the show was over, although I know that we went back to rehearsing more afterwards because that night also encouraged us to continue to create more shows for people, which we did, and we ended up selling the shows to school systems all over the country. Poetry Live uh, performed using lots and lots of different performers and actors and poets traveling around as troops of two. We performed shows in all 50 states. Now, I didn't do all of those performances. Like I said, we had troops of people doing it. So regardless of whether you were new to the Poetry Live organization or whether you had been in the community for quite a while, practice was at the core of what made all of that work so good. And I started to redefine what practice meant to me as I moved further and further along. And what I started to understand was that practice was always there. And I started to also understand that I could apply practice to almost anything. For example, if you've ever watched a seasoned plumber work, the plumber's hands move in and out of the toolbox, in and out from under the sink. The plumber's hands have knowledge, like the plumber's brain has knowledge. So practice applies to everything. I mentioned the Appalachian fiddlers that were gathered in the parking lot at Westgate years ago when I was uh, young and played music with my father. I played the guitar, and I'm going to focus now on practicing the guitar for a moment. And the reason why is because it is a current practice that I'm participating in along with my writing practice and other creative practices as well as practicing social media skills as well as practicing business skills. I'm busy doing all that as well as practicing podcast skills which is 
what I'm doing right now, recording this show for you, the guitar. I learned how to play the guitar when I was a boy, and of course, playing it with my father and all those old Appalachian musicians didn't really seem like practice, but that was what we were doing. My fingers learned how to move around on those strings. But as I moved away from my teenage years and into my 20s and into my adult life and into my 30s when I started reciting the poems from the stage, I left the guitar behind. I would pick it up occasionally. I would strum it and I would always think, gosh, I, I wish I could play the guitar better. And I simply failed to understand that the way to play the guitar better would be to practice it. So I thought I could pick it up, and I did, and I would play a few chords, put it down, pick it up again six months later, play a few chords, put it down, and that was that. And I also wanted to sing, and I knew that I couldn't sing because I always had been singing off-key. never occurred to me that I didn't have to sing like the great singers of old. All I needed to do was use my voice as it naturally came through my vocal cords and out into the room. And tying the guitar and my voice back for a moment to Roger Darrow and Randy Talley, I didn't mention that Roger and Randy also were involved in another business that's very popular in Asheville called Green Sage. And they opened Green Sage quite a while ago, and it's doing very well in Asheville. And there's a Green Sage location on Merriman Avenue I think it may now be five years old or so. For the night they had the grand opening, I attended that party. I walked in and saw a few friends and also could hear some music. They'd hired a, a jazz singer and a guitar player. So sitting there in the middle of the room was the, the guitar player, and he was playing a, a really good guitar. The, the guitar player could play. And I watched him move his fingers over the strings and I stood there thinking I used to be able to do that but I'll never be able to do it again it was so long ago but there was a time when I could play like that and I even made a comment to somebody nearby I said you know I used to be able to play the guitar like that but there was something that happened that night I was inspired at that party to returned to the guitar. So a few days later, I pulled my guitar, which was living under the bed and had been there for I don't know how long, and I don't know if I'd played it in years. I pulled the guitar out. The strings were rusty or old, and I did change the strings on the guitar. And over the years, even though I didn't play the guitar, I'd always owned one. I had a Martin D-18, I had a classical guitar, and then in 1993, I, I bought the guitar I pulled out from under the bed, a Blue Ridge. I think I still have the receipt for the guitar, even to this day. I think I paid $325 for the guitar, and it's a pretty good guitar. Some people say it's the poor player's Martin. And I decided that I was going to practice the guitar. Lo and behold, there it is, practice the guitar. But moreover, I decided that I was going to learn some songs. Now this, I think, maybe was five or six years ago, as I said, whenever Green Sage opened on Merriman Avenue. So I started playing, and I set about to learn some songs. And I did learn songs, and they were simple songs. I learned Danny Boy, 
I learned Crazy, written by Willie Nelson. I learned Gentle on My Mind. I learned Suzanne by Leonard Cohen. And I started to brush up on some of the songs I'd learned when I was younger. For example, the Tennessee Waltz was one that I played with my father in. So I got a little songbook, Patsy Cline sang the Tennessee Waltz. I listened to it online and I learned the chords again, learned how to play the notes around the Tennessee Waltz, as well as the other songs I was learning. And they all started to fall in place. I also decided to not worry so much about whether I could hit the notes or not, whether I could really quote-unquote sing, and I just decided that I would start speaking the words, like Suzanne takes you down to her place by the river. She feeds you tea and oranges that come all the way from China, and just when you mean to tell her that you have no love to give her, she gets you on her wavelength, and she lets that river answer that you've always been her lover. Or, I was waltzing with my darling to the Tennessee Waltz, when an old friend I happened to meet, I introduced him to my loved one, and while they were dancing, my friend stole my true love from me. Or Gentle on My Mind by John Hartford. It's knowing that the door is always open and your path is free to walk that makes me tend to leave my sleeping bag rolled up and stashed behind your couch. And it's knowing that I'm not shackled by forgotten words and bonds and those ink stains that have dried upon some line that keeps you on the back roads by the rivers of my memory that keeps you ever gentle on my mind. So as I practiced my guitar and I started to let my voice play along with those old tunes I was learning, I soon began to realize I didn't have to sing. All I had to do was speak and things would work out just fine. This is a very important point because up until about four or five years ago, I was terrified to even think of singing. Now I'm rather comfortable at least of doing spoken word over my guitar playing. And the other thing that I've noticed about my guitar playing, I have gotten better and better at it. Much of what I learned when I was a boy has transferred all the way down the line. So now I am moving my fingers in a way that seems automatic, just like the plumber under the sink, or just like Roger Darrow when he was running his grocery store. He would help me find the things I needed, and Roger was just moving with great ease throughout that store. So once you understand that the practice, almost the redundant, mundane, ordinary practice of doing something over and over with great ease will start to give you an exciting fluidity. It stirs your imagination. You start to understand that practice is just that. It's the messy way of going about doing something that will delight you. So on that note, as I said, I've been practicing my guitar and I've been adding a bit of what I call spoken word. I'd like to say singing, it's really not. And so here's an example of the work that I've been doing. Unprofessional example recorded here in my little studio at home. It's Leonard Cohen's song, Suzanne. So here it is, my version.
Suzanne takes you down to her place by the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night beside her, and you know that she's half crazy, and that's why you want to be there. And she feeds you tea and oranges that come all the way from China. And just when you mean to tell her that you have no love to give her, she gets you on her wavelength, and she lets that river answer that you've always been her lover. You want to travel with her, and you want to travel blind, and you think, well, maybe you can trust her because you've touched her perfect body with your mind. Now, Jesus, he was a sailor. When he walked upon that water, he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower, and just when he knew for certain only. Drowning men could see him. He said, "All men shall be sailors until the sea shall free them." But he himself was broken long before the sky would open, forsaken, almost human. He sank beneath your wisdom like a stone. And you want to travel with him, and you want to travel blind. And you think, well, maybe you can trust him because he's touched your perfect body with his mind. Now Suzanne, she takes you down to her place by the river. She's wearing rags and feathers from Salvation Army counters, and the sun pours in like honey on our Lady of the Harbor, and she shows you where to look among the. Garbage and the flowers. There are heroes in the seaweed. There are children in the morning. They're leaning out for love, and they will lean that way forever. While Suzanne holds the mirror, and you want to travel with her, and you want to travel blind, and you think, well, maybe you could trust her because. She's touched her perfect body with her mind. And that was my version of Leonard Cohen's Suzanne. I learned the song because I liked it. I also learned it because I had heard it a lot, and Leonard Cohen's voice. Is similar to mine in the sense of the the low register. So, I figured, well, if I practice enough, I will start to feel comfortable enough to create something around that wonderful song that he wrote all those years ago. And of course, Leonard Cohen has many, many, many songs. And if you're a fan of Leonard Cohen, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So, when you practice, whatever it is you're practicing. No matter whether it's the grocery business like Roger, or the poetry business, or throwing pizzas in the air, or doing whatever you do, if you give yourself permission to allow the practice to just be there and inform, and when you do that, the skills, the insight, the surprise, the imaginative leaps will also start to emerge more and more and more. I don't remember how many times I performed 
practiced Leonard Cohen's Suzanne. Of course, when you lose track of how often you practice, that means you are probably doing yourself a big favor because the practice is just simply built into your daily life, what you do. There are many moving parts in life, as you well know. I know that I often will practice my guitar in between the other chores that I have, the other work things that I have to do, the administrative work, filling out forms, working with my to-do list, or talking on the phone. I'll finish a conversation and maybe as a break I'll switch over and strum the guitar a little bit. So no matter what you practice, the more you do it, the less you will start to notice that you're practicing. So when you pick up your guitar and you start to practice it, at first it might really feel like practice. I'm trying to learn how to do this. When you continue doing whatever it is you're doing, learning how to play the guitar, learning how to drive a car, I know most of us know how to drive a car, but there's maybe a few out there who don't have a driver's license and they're adults and they're learning how to drive a car. Whatever it is you're, you're doing, I have a friend here in Taos, her name is Kate, and Kate's practicing her baking skills. So whenever she comes for um, a dinner or whenever I have a chance to go by her house, she's always very proud of the, the cake or the pie that she's made. It's gluten-free, she says, and her practice is paying off. I'm not the only one who's noticed how much they look forward to having a slice of pie from Kate. So it's practice, and practice makes things. Practice will never make, make perfect. You can't achieve perfection, but you can achieve uh, a tasty slice of pie that's gluten-free, as Kate will tell you. So on that note, thank you for spending this time with me, and I appreciate you tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more of Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM in downtown Asheville on Wall Street. Uh, and thank you, Robin Collier, for airing this show in Taos on Cultural Energy Radio, KCEI. If you'd like to reach me, Nave at jamesnave.com, Nave spelled N-A-V-E, every Saturday morning, just to remind you, I host an imaginative storm writing prompt of the week gathering workshop salon with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. You can join it. There's never a charge for coming on the Zoom call and we would love to have you, love to get to know you, love to see you there. And if you like to write, it's um, a great hour and the time is 12 to 1 p.m. Central Time, and you will always be able to find the Zoom link at imaginativestorm.com. And the writers who come on are from lots lots of parts of the world, including one fellow, Ichno Venikirk, who often will call in from South Africa. So, again, thanks ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it. And I hope to see you 
again sometime soon. And until then, I will catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.